In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So one of my first summer jobs as a teenager was at a manufacturing plant in my hometown of Statesville, North Carolina. And this particular company made Boston pencil sharpeners. You know the ones, those old crank style pencil sharpeners that were in your childhood classrooms. If you were born after 1990, I'm sorry. <laughs> Google it, they're real. So I was told when they hired me for the summer, I'd primarily be putting stickers on the pencil sharpener boxes as they were coming off the conveyor belt, already assembled and packaged. So, that sounds simple, right? Easy gig. I was horrible at it. The boxes rolled off the conveyor belt so fast and every time I tried to get a sticker on there, it would be crooked or halfway off the box. It was a nightmare. So think about Lucille Ball and the Chocolate Factory, but pencil sharpeners. I was demoted on my second day. It was a real confidence booster. So, after the sticker fiasco, I was told to head down to the oil pit. And I thought maybe this was like a metaphor for more training, but it wasn't. It was an actual oil pit. So the oil pit is where all the gears and the grinders that are inside the pencil sharpener, that's where they're all greased up and sent down the line for assembly. Y'all, it smells so bad in the oil pit. But since I failed at packaging, that's where I was. Greasing gears and grinders for eight hours a day, no one's idea of a good time. But I'll tell you this, I'll never look at a pencil sharpener the same way again. <laughs> On the conveyor belt, all I ever saw was the finished product, albeit moving very quickly. But now that I'm fully aware of what's going on under the surface, I appreciate the mechanics a little bit more. Because once you see how something truly works, your perspective shifts. So in today's readings, we get a glimpse of the inner workings of faith through the words of Jesus and Luke and Paul in 1 Corinthians. In the gospel reading, Jesus is surrounded by a massive crowd. People gathered from all over to hear him speak and to be healed from things that have tortured their minds and bodies and spirits. It's all very real, and the pain and the desperation is palpable. And Jesus understands why people are here and what they want. But the healing is really just the outer packaging of this scene. Yes, Jesus responds to the need present, and the text tells us that Power came out from him and he healed all of them. But that's not the focus of his time. Jesus stands before this vast crowd and he begins to talk about the inner workings of the kingdom of God, the mechanics of faith. And what we hear are the familiar words of the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you, revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. 
If you look back at Advent and the words of Mary in the Magnificat, they sound a lot like the Beatitudes in today's readings. Mary says that God has brought down the powerful from their thrones and lifted up the lowly, filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Jesus says that too, that the hungry will be filled and that the poor will have ownership of the kingdom of God. Just like the Magnificat, this is a radical assertion of God's power and an acceptance of the, of the people that the world always rejects. The words of Jesus and Mary echo those of the prophets and the psalmists, reminding those who hear them that the kingdom of God does not follow the rules of the world. Yes, Jesus can heal the wounds of those gathered around him, but the truth of the kingdom of God is about grinding away notions of power and proclaiming salvation for every single one of us. The Beatitudes are a comfort and a challenge. The blessings and the woes are there to remind us there is a stark reality. Those who covet worldly power cannot have ownership of the kingdom of God. The world does not satisfy God, and it shouldn't satisfy us either. With these words, Jesus is dismantling faith and showing us all how it works. So, what do we take from this? That we have to be miserable in order to be blessed? That we have to suffer to inherit the kingdom of God? Not exactly. But it is an acknowledgement that the pain of the world is real and that suffering and sin are real. But with the Beatitudes, we hear that our brokenness is not a barrier that will keep us from God. The barriers that keep us from God are the ones that see us trying to create our own kingdoms, to mask our pain through consumption and shame, or to ignore the pain of our neighbors. We try our best, but we can't be the makers of our own salvation. Jesus tells us that we can't find healing in the ways of the world. We have to look elsewhere. And though it's sometimes frustrating, faith is always asking this of us, to operate in two different realities, to look beyond our human condition and see things differently. The work of faith is in the here and now and in the world to come. So yes, suffering is real and death is real and it's devastating and painful. But there's also truth in resurrection and redemption. We have to live in the reality of both those truths. And Jesus knew this reality firsthand. He knew about the pain and joy of the world through his own humanity. In a benediction written on the Beatitudes, Nadia Bowles-Weber says this, This Jesus whom we follow cried at the tomb of his friend and turned the other cheek and forgave those who hung him on a cross because he was God's Beatitude, God's blessing to the weak in a world that admires only the strong. So faith requires us to look at the world differently. And I know at first glance that our reading from 1 Corinthians does not appear to have much in common with the Beatitudes because Paul is certainly less eloquent and more direct. Let's put it that way. 
But I want to argue that both these readings are pointing us toward a reality of God's redemptive work in the world. Paul says, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. Ouch. So a little backstory: the Corinthians are not especially fond of this idea of bodily resurrection. And this has caused some theological differences. It's putting it nicely. So Paul does not mince his words. Christ's resurrection is real, and if it isn't, then none of this matters. He's laying it on the line. If death is real and destructive, then the only way through it is Christ. The Corinthians probably didn't want to hear this any more than we do. It's hard enough to grapple with the concept of resurrection when it involves you always having to talk about death. So the Corinthians would rather have a hazy view of the afterlife. They don't want to dwell in the specifics. But Paul is forcing them to consider a God that dwells in both death and life through resurrection. Paul tells us through his words to the Corinthians that death and resurrection are real. One belongs to the world and the other to God. Jesus does the same with the Beatitudes. Suffering and pain are real, but they're also transformed in the kingdom of God. Both Paul and Jesus are telling us something foundational. The world does not have us. We belong to God. So folks, death and power, that's the packaging of the world. That's what we're presented with day after day, but we cannot accept that that is all there is. The gift of faith is that it shifts our perspective. We have a God that can heal us and challenge us and redeem us. And we're building our faith through our shared life together, through our imperfect attempts to love God and our neighbor. The packaging and the inner workings of our lives may not always match up, but our faith is grounded in a living God that shows us how salvation really works. Amen.